It was the middle of the night two weeks ago. Wake up, there's some man trying to hit us with a hammer. Brutally attacked with a blunt instrument and a knife. Been beaten on the head with a hammer. That very moment, I just about stopped breathing. Bennett's family was brutally attacked. I was in a coma. A very brutal, horrific scene. I knew she was dead. I, I just knew. You know, they were good people. Why did, you know, what did they do wrong? We have no hard suspects at this time. But it's, it's always there. But the guy is probably deceased. It was comforting to think this person was dead. The hammer man, whatever you want to call it. It's always there in the back of my mind. Every day in all these years. It haunted the families and the victims to the core. I had a lot of nightmares. You know, the fear that we lived with all these years, we always wondered if he was still out there because he would know who we were, but we wouldn't know who he was. It's been over 34 years. He's known, but he, we just don't have his name. Yesterday afternoon, in a perfectly executed arrest, my detectives arrested James Joseph D'Angelo, 72 years old, living in Citrus Heights. It was the culmination of the decades-long search for a suspect who terrorized California in the 1970s and 80s, an enigma known by multiple names. The Visalia Ransacker, the East Area Rapist, the original Night Stalker, the Golden State Killer. He committed more than 100 burglaries, over 50 rapes, 13 murders. I can tell you that although it was DNA, ultimately, that led us down the right road, there were a lot of places that road could have led. Like so many, I'd followed that investigation from a distance for years, reading everything I could find. Michelle McNamara's 2013 magazine article, In the Footsteps of a Killer, was absolutely horrifying. I'd even listened to the chilling recording made by one of the man's victims, released by the FBI in 2016. I wondered over and over, would it ever be solved? Then came that day in April 2018. This is insane. Uh, looks like they've caught the East Area Rapist, and if that's true, they've caught the Golden State Killer. So, uh, I think you got him, Michelle. More fascinating was how the cops did it, taking DNA left by the killer and sort of reverse engineering the identity of a suspect. Suddenly, some of Colorado's oldest and most notorious cold cases seemed solvable. And at the top of the list, the hammer attacks of January 1984 that left Patricia Louise Smith dead in Lakewood and Bruce and Deborah Bennett and their daughter Melissa dead in Aurora. I'm Kevin Vaughn, an investigative reporter at KUSA-TV 9 News in Denver. And this is Blame, a fear all these years. In the first four episodes of this podcast, we've gone back to 1984. We followed along as our predecessors reported on those brutal assaults and a shaken community. Now we're gonna tell you a very different story, how we broke the news that there was finally a suspect who was no longer merely a DNA profile. Remember Colleen Fitzpatrick? So with some proprietary software we've developed, we can harvest or mine those databases. She was the genetic genealogist brought in by Aurora police in an effort to find a suspect in the Bennett murders 
and by extension, the slaying of Smith. On a cold case, if you find a match in one of those databases, you can get the probable last name of your killer. Fitzpatrick had first talked about the results of her work in February 2018, when she appeared on the show On the Case with Paula Zahn in an episode profiling the Hammer murders. What is the family name that she's identified? She gave me the last name of Ewing, spelled E-W-I-N-G. After the arrest in the Golden State Killer case, and after that show, I started looking closely at those assaults and murders in Colorado. Reporters call it peeling the onion, pulling a story apart layer by layer, starting on the outside and working your way in. I called every source in my Rolodex who might know something about these cases. I requested copies of court and police records on the killings, including the arrest warrant for the killer issued in 2002, identifying him only by his genetic fingerprint. I pulled the autopsy reports of the victims, poured over newspaper stories, watched some of our old reports on three-quarter inch videotape. I took the only thing I had to go on, that name, Ewing, and went to the Colorado prison records. There I found a man with that name arrested a few months after the hammer attacks and behind bars ever since. Could this be the man who'd killed four people all those years ago? I searched for records on his crimes. At the courthouse, nothing. Same at the Denver Police Department. Finally, the Denver DA's office found the case file in offsite storage. It took a few days. Then 29 pages of old court records arrived on a CD. The guy had raped a woman using a tire iron as a weapon and taken another woman hostage. And he'd done it less than seven months after the Hammer murders. Holy cow, I yelled to my boss, Nicole Vapp. This could be him. There was only one question. Had his DNA been taken and entered into the national database? If it was already there, I knew it didn't match the Smith and Bennett murders or he'd already have been identified as a suspect. In the early 2000s, Colorado lawmakers passed a measure that required DNA testing of convicted felons. But the law said the DNA didn't have to be collected until an offender was nearing release. Was it possible this guy had been sitting in Colorado prison for more than 30 years, his DNA still not in the FBI's CODIS database? After some checking with the Colorado Department of Corrections, I found he'd been tested. His profile was already in CODIS. He wasn't our killer, our madman with a hammer. Over the ensuing months, I talked to many people about the Bennett and Smith murders, including Vanessa Bennett. You have reached the voicemail box of... Vanessa. At the tone, please record your voice message. Hey, Vanessa, it's uh, Kevin Vaughn at 9 News in Denver. Hope to talk to you. Hope you're doing all right. Talk to you later. Bye. More than three months into my quest, I was still gathering information, talking to as many people as I could. How are you? I'm good. My phone was cut off for a couple of days, so I wasn't able to call. I hadn't done a single story. I wasn't sure when I would. Then, in the late morning of August 7, 2018, I was walking to my car in the 9 News parking lot, heading to the Denver Library to research another story I was working on. My phone buzzed. It was one of my sources with a cryptic tip. Something was happening in the Hammer case. Despite my best efforts to get more information, my source wouldn't tell me anything else. I knew a story like this wouldn't stand to wraps for long, so I forgot the trip to the library and rushed back into the office, heading straight for Nicole. I told her about the call, suggesting we start working the phones. She called her sources, I called mine. 
After a flurry of conversations, we had the first few tidbits of a story. Something was happening. They were looking at a man in prison in another state. He had criminal cases in Arizona and Nevada. Investigators tried to question him, but he wouldn't talk. Authorities had obtained a warrant to take his DNA. After more calls, this. His DNA was a match. A case that for nearly 35 years looked hopeless suddenly looked like it could be solved. No one told us exactly how that connection had been made. I suspected either his DNA had just been entered into the CODIS database, or someone had taken the crime scene DNA, located relatives, built a family tree, and then tracked it back to him. No one told us who the suspect was, so I went looking with the only name I had, Ewing. I tried the Arizona prison system, but without a first initial, the online search tool would not work. I went to the Nevada inmate database. It let me search by last name only. I typed in Ewing. A handful of names popped up on a list, and after just a few minutes of looking at them, I settled on one name, Christopher Ewing. I figured he was a good candidate because he'd been born in 1960, meaning he was old enough to have committed the crimes here, and because he'd been in prison since at least 1989. After a few phone calls to Nevada, I learned he'd actually been behind bars since 1984, the same year as the attacks here. That fit with one of the key questions in the Colorado cases. How could someone inflict such violence over a span of less than two weeks? Four attacks that left four people dead and two others clinging to life, and then just stop. If this was the suspect, the reason the attack stopped could have been because he was behind bars in another state since shortly after they happened. I think I found him, I yelled to Nicole. I tried Vanessa. You have reached the voicemail box of... Hi, Vanessa. It's Kevin Vaughn at Nine News in Denver. I hope you're doing okay. It's um, lunchtime-ish on Tuesday, August 7th. Hey, give me a call when you get a chance. There are some developments in the investigation of the attack on you that I wanted to make sure you were aware of. Talk to you soon. I called Connie Bennett, Vanessa's grandmother. The woman who came upon the brutal scene where her son daughter-in-law and one granddaughter were murdered. I'd never talked to her before, had no idea what kind of reception I'd get. Hello? Hi, I was trying to reach Constance Bennett. No idea she preferred Connie to her formal name. This is Constance. Hi, Constance. This is Kevin Vaughn. I'm a reporter with Channel 9 in Denver. Okay. How are you? All right. I was calling because... um, we're working on a story that the police have a potential suspect in the attack on your son and daughter-in-law and granddaughters. Uh-huh. And I sort of wanted to ask you about that and see if you'd been told about it and what you thought about it and so forth. Um, I haven't really been told anything yet. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to be... I'm going to be meeting at the district attorney's office out there in Arapahoe County this afternoon, so uh, maybe they'll tell me something then. I'm not sure. Okay. What time is that, if you don't mind me asking? Um, well, somebody's going to pick me up, so I'm not sure what time the meeting will be or anything, but uh, they called me and asked me to come out, so I'll do that. 
Maybe they have something to tell me, I hope. Okay. We talked for a few more minutes, but I didn't want to keep her. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye. Nicole was standing at my desk. She's going to the district attorney's office for a meeting, I excitedly told her. After more calls with sources, and after one official after another declined to comment on the record, we were comfortable we had the bones of a story. I wrote it up for our website, and then at 4 o'clock I went on the air. I hope they find out who did that, who murdered my kids for no reason. A break in a murder case, cold for more than three decades, that could finally mean justice for an Aurora family. My personal opinion is, based upon the evidence, there's a whole bunch of things that come into play, um, that the guy is probably deceased. That was last year when longtime Aurora police investigator Steve Connor expressed the fear that he'd never find the man responsible for one of the state's most heinous and vexing crimes. But today, Nine Wants to Know investigator Kevin Vaughn learned that police have a potential suspect in the 1984 murders of a couple and their daughter. Kevin? Anush and Tom, this was a brutal crime. A young couple and their daughter savagely beaten with a hammer. And now there may be the break that investigators have wanted for more than three decades. Less than 15 minutes later, Aurora and Lakewood Police and the DA's offices in both counties sent out the kind of press release that makes reporters crazy, suggesting that we were misguided, or worse, wrong. The investigation into the 1984 cold case homicides of Patricia Louise Smith in Lakewood and the three members of the Bennett family in Aurora are reaching a critical stage. No further information can be released at this time, but we expect to provide more information at a news conference that will be hosted by the Aurora Police Department on Friday, August 10th at 10 a.m. Representatives of the Aurora Police Department, the Lakewood Police Department, the 18th Judicial District Attorney's Office, the 1st Judicial District Attorney's Office, and the Colorado Bureau of Investigation will be at the news conference. The news media should be cautious that any information provided by a source other than one of these organizations may be inaccurate and should be treated with caution. These are sensitive and complicated investigations, and information is being made available as quickly as possible. We didn't identify the suspect in those first stories. There was confusion about Ewing's actual first name. And finding records showing why he'd been in prison all those years earlier was a slow process. In the meantime, Vanessa called back. So what, um, so they, did they call you all today? Yeah. What, um, can you tell me what they told you? They told me that uh, my, the killer was caught that they are, he's in prison in Nevada, and that the reason they couldn't find him is because, I guess, Nevada was kind of slow in um, the DNA thing. Ah, the DNA thing. Clear back in the mid-1990s, Nevada legislators passed a law calling for DNA testing of inmates, but it only applied to new convicts, people already behind bars, People like Christopher Ewing in the Northern Nevada Correctional Center weren't tested. Finally, in 2013, a new measure made Nevada's law retroactive. But administrators in the Nevada Department of Corrections ignored it for more than three years. It wasn't until pressure applied by the state's attorney general that testing began, slowly. They updated the DNA, so now they got the DNA and it says to match. Wow. And they can extradite him out to Colorado. Wow, so they told you they have a DNA match? Yeah. Wow. 
And then I got the DA calling me saying the same thing. Well, I hope I hope this was welcome news for you. I imagine that it is. You know, it is. I I kind of thought about what I was going to say if I had a chance to speak to him face to face. But it's like if you, if you were to see me and you looked at me very carefully. You can see the pain in my eyes. You can see the scars on my body that I inflicted on myself and were inflicted on me. And it's like it just tells a story of its own. So it's just, you know, I just, I go over it in my head and I'm just like, you know, like this is what you did to me, you know? So it's just, it's a long time. Yeah. But I never thought, I never thought would happen. That I never thought would come. Nobody matched our story. Instead, other media simply reported on the press release, focusing on the critical stage language used in that first sentence. Normally, it's a reporter's dream to be all alone and out front on a big story. In this case, with authorities subtly suggesting we got it wrong, I almost would have welcomed someone else reporting what we did. Instead, we went it alone. And the next day, we took it further. Anna Hewson, the photojournalist, producer, and editor I work with, connected a crucial set of dots, determining that the man sitting in a Nevada prison under the name Christopher Ewing was actually Alex Christopher Ewing. And that discovery led us to a slew of court records that we detailed in this report. We're getting our first look today at the man Aurora police consider a potential suspect in the 1984 slings of a couple and their young daughter. Our Nine Wants to Know team has confirmed that this man, Alex Christopher Ewing, is in the sights of Aurora investigators in a series of attacks that rattled the metro area. Nine Wants to Know, Kevin Vaughn is here. And Kevin, these Colorado attacks, they may not be the only ones that the suspect is linked to. That's right, Anusha. And if this man is indeed accused of the Bennett family murders, it may answer a question that's confounded detectives for decades. Four attacks in 12 days. The murder of Patricia Smith in Lakewood. The slayings of Bruce, Deborah, and Melissa Bennett in Aurora. And a question. Why did the brutality in the Denver area just stop? Now Nine wants to know has confirmed information that may explain exactly why. This Nevada inmate, 57-year-old Alex Christopher Ewing, is the man police believe may be responsible for all that bloodshed. And he appears to have left Colorado just after the Bennetts were killed. Court records show Ewing was arrested for an attack 11 days later in Kingman, Arizona, accused of beating a resident over the head with a rock. Months later, while en route from jail to court for a hearing, he escaped. On the lam for two days, he broke into a home in Henderson, Nevada and savagely beat a couple with an axe handle. He was arrested, charged, and convicted in that case, and he's been in Nevada's prison system ever since under the name Christopher Ewing. Now the question is whether he'll be charged in those Colorado attacks and extradited back here. The day after that, we were in Tucson, meeting in person with Vanessa Bennett as she talked publicly for the first time about her struggles with drug addiction and homelessness. Okay, everything's rolling, so, yeah. You heard some of what she had to say in the first episode of Blame the Fear All These Years. Um, Here's some more. Is it overstating it to say that, that you live with the ramifications of that day in January 1984 yes. every single day of your life? Yes, it does. Like. I remember a lot of my life, I I had, um, I was angry because why did I have to be the only one that lives? Why did my parents die? They were great people. And then I turned out being a junkie, you know? And I always thought, 
you know, they were good people. Why did, you know, what did they do wrong? They didn't do anything. You know, they were young. They were in their, like, uh, mid-20s. You know, they were just kids, too. How much time have you spent over the years thinking about who did this to you and your family and, and the fact that they had not been caught or punished or any of that? And maybe you didn't. I know some crime victims that don't think about it. Is it something you thought about? Yes, it is something I've thought about over the years many times. Um, I've always come to conclusions or theories that, you know, when I go to sleep at night, or the fears that I have of going to sleep at night or the trauma from not being able to sleep, that I revisit my, my trauma in those dreams. Or like whenever I undergo a surgery, that whenever I undergo a surgery, this is a big thing, is that when I come out of my surgery, I start crying or, you know, um, I'll just literally start crying because I think that in the midst of my surgeries, it's pain, you know? So I'm reliving like a pain while I'm sleeping or relaxed. So I go back to that or associate it with that. Finally, three days after we broke the story, there was a suspect. So good morning, everyone. I'm Officer Kenneth Forrest, a spokesperson for the Aurora Police Department. We are holding today's press conference uh, to provide updated information about the 1984 cold case murders of the Bennett family and Patricia Smith. Reporters and photographers were gathered in the Aurora City Council chambers to hear from the various officials whose agencies were involved in the investigation of the long unsolved hammer attacks. Good morning. Aurora Police Chief Nick Metz led off. Just shy of four years ago, I arrived to uh, Aurora from Seattle and one of my first orders of business was to ask our major crimes unit to Give me a rundown of any cold cases uh, that we had uh, in the in the in process, and this was one of the cases that they uh, provided uh, um, information for to me. And I remember this case very specifically at the time because it was really reminiscent of a case that I responded to as a young officer in the 80s in Seattle. It was obvious that our detectives, those who were on the case still and those who had retired, was, it was a case that they were not giving up on and were continuing to move forward on. It was obvious that this case haunted our detectives and officers who responded that night and who continued to work forward um, on processing and investigating. It was a case that haunted the families and the victims to the core. As Metz started talking, a stack of documents was distributed to reporters. And as Metz and other officials confirmed that every detail we'd reported the previous three days was accurate, I started digging through those papers, which included long, detailed affidavits laying out the case against Alex Christopher Ewing in the Smith and Bennett murders. As I read, I realized something important. The case was cracked in many ways because of the work done by the original detectives to properly collect, store, and preserve evidence. Work that was done years before anyone conceived of the concept of being able to take DNA from a crime scene and use it to identify a killer. After that came forensic work that continued through the late 1980s, through the 90s, and well into the new century. Ever more sophisticated testing that gave detectives a complete profile to enter into the FBI's national database and definitively link the murders of Smith and the Bennetts. And getting to this point required something else. 
It required the Nevada Department of Corrections to finally start gathering DNA samples from all of its inmates. After Nevada's attorney general ordered that testing, it took that department 18 months to finally catch up with Alex Christopher Ewing, get his DNA, and enter his profile into the CODIS database. That's where, on July 2, 2018, a computer matched his DNA to DNA left at the home where Bruce, Deborah, and Melissa Bennett were murdered, and Vanessa Bennett was so savagely beaten, doctors thought she might not live. When I received the call from uh, Director John Camper from the Colorado Bureau of Investigation just a few short weeks ago and was told uh, the results of, a, of the DNA results, um, I, it, it sent a chill through my spine. Just a day or two after receiving word of the, uh, of the DNA results, uh, we met with the family members uh, and victims, victims of, uh, and family members of, of this, uh, uh, this suspect. And it was obvious in talking with them that there was no closure. There's been no closure. And these murders, have not only destroyed the lives of those who were killed, but it's destroyed the lives of those who are still with us today. Our hope is that even though we will never really be able to bring closure to these families, uh, we hope that they will feel a sense of justice. As the press conference continued, it was clear detectives had much more than that initial DNA match. They learned Ewing had been in Colorado in 1983 and early 1984, obtaining a driver's license and renting an apartment in the Capitol Hill neighborhood. And detectives from both Lakewood and Aurora had gone in Nevada to try to interview him. When one of them told Ewing his genetic fingerprint had been found at the scene of Patricia Louise Smith's murder, he responded, there's got to be a mistake. But he refused to answer other questions. Those detectives armed with a warrant swabbed the inside of his mouth, obtaining their own DNA samples. And those samples confirmed the match. In the meantime, a parade of official pronouncements continued at the microphone. Uh, this arrest will really, uh, uh, it won't bring back any of our victims. It won't change this tragedy. Lakewood Police Chief Dan McCaskey. But it means a lot to these families and our, our organization. Today represents the first public and formal step on what will prove to be a long journey towards justice in this case. Arapahoe County DA George Brockler. Uh, there will be other questions about when will this case reach resolution. I can't tell you that. I've handled some significant cases in my day and I have never once predicted how long it would take to get to the end of the justice seeking process and that holds true for a case even like this one that's 34 years old. But I promise you that we will do everything we can to uphold all the rights of the accused in this case, but also vigorously pursue justice on our end. Sometime today, we anticipate that we will be uh, going to the governor's office and requesting that Mr. Ewing be extradited from the state of Nevada. Jefferson County DA Peter Weir. Depending upon how that is handled, both by the governor's office and the governor's office in Nevada, and Mr. Ewing himself, this matter could take anywhere from a couple of weeks to perhaps a month or two. We just don't know. This marks the final episode of part one of Blame the Fear All These Years. We'll be back soon with part two as we unravel the life of Alex Christopher Ewing and follow the trail of terror he left in his wake after fleeing Colorado. Not nothing. 
dig deeper into his background, and we'll follow the latest developments in the ongoing legal battle to bring him back to Colorado to face charges in the murders of Patricia Louise Smith and Bruce, Deborah, and Melissa Bennett. Blame is a production of KUSA-TV 9 News in Denver, Colorado, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer. Anna Houston is producer and editor. And I'm your host, investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. There's much more, including photographs, interviews, and some of our old coverage of this case at 9news.com slash blame. If you like Blame, The Fear All These Years, subscribe at Apple Podcasts or any popular podcasting app. And check out our first two investigative podcasts. Blame, was the death of Jill Wells an accident or murder? And Blame, lost at home. You can like us on our Facebook page, Blame Podcast. And if you've got suggestions or tips for a future investigative podcast, reach us at blame at 9news.com.